Let's go into the Word of God and read what God's Word has to say to us. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read just two verses, the 19th and 20th verses. And today I want to talk to you about embracing the crucified life. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The Apostle Paul wrote, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. My theme is embracing the crucified life. Ought cum scuto, ought in scuto, was an exhortation of the Spartan mothers, we could call it a command, when they sent their sons out to battle. It means you come back with your shield or you come back laying on it. Defeat in the sense of running from battle and all that was not an option. One of two options. You win, you live and defeat the enemy, or you die, which, by the way, in Sparta was the greatest honor a soldier could have, a Spartan could have, to die on the battlefield. Many things we could say about the Spartans, which I'm trying to draw an analogy that is not a strict analogy between Spartans and Christians, but there are some applications. I did not see the movie The 300, but I'm somewhat familiar with the Battle of Thermopylae. And in the movie, I'm told, King Leonidas is approached by Daxus. By the way, Sparta had always had two kings so that there wasn't any tyranny. King Leonidas is approached by Draxus, who is disgruntled and I guess a bit appalled that the Spartans only showed up to fight the Persians with 300 men. Draxus says to King Leonidas, it seems as though you weren't as committed to this battle as we are. These are free Greeks from different states that came. In the movie, King Leonidas responds by asking one of the free Greeks, what is your trade? And he answers, blacksmith, sir. Goes to another here, the free Greeks, not the Spartans. And he says to him, what is your trade? His potter, sir. And you, Arcadian? Sculptor, sir. Then in the movie, he turns to the Spartans and he says, Spartans, what did we do? And they raise their swords, who, who, who? Big difference on the battlefield. So Gerard Butler, the actor, turns to Draxus and he says, see, my old friend, we showed up with more soldiers than you did. Potters and blacksmiths and sculptors and whoever else, the Spartans only had one goal in life, soldiers. Everything that they did from their birth to their grave was to train, to be a soldier, to do battle when necessary. They even went so far as not growing their own food. They had others do it, which were slaves, do it for them. And when questioned about that, they said it would distract us from our calling to be soldiers. Diogenes, famous Greek philosopher, made a trip to Sparta and on his way home, approaching his city, someone asked, Diogenes, where are you going? He said, I'm moving my things from the men's quarters to the women's quarters after he visited Sparta. By the way, Herodotus, the Greek historian, mentions in his history of the Greeks that there were one million Persians. Then we have Simonides, who, just as an aside, he's the one credited with inventing the memory systems that we still use today, classical memory systems. And Simonides put the number of the Persians at three million. 
In any case, whatever the actual number was, the Greeks were far outnumbered and showed up with only 300 Spartans, which history notes that one Spartan soldier was worth minimally three or four soldiers of any other army, because that's all that they did. They trained constantly for war. So no wonder when Diogenes went to Sparta to visit and came back, he said, I'm moving my stuff from the men's place to the woman's place. Even though the women, the mothers, were the ones sending their sons off to war. So you come back with your shield, you come back laying on it. But there's no such thing as defeat for a Spartan. And if you're going to die, die at the highest pinnacle of glory for us here in Sparta, die on the battlefield. Well, you may question some of the things about Sparta and its dedication to its trade. But there is some similarities. Their minimalism, that's the word that we use today, one Greek observed that even the poverty of the Spartans is more enviable than all the wealth of the Persian king. There was just something about them that drew the admiration of many, many people to this very day. Plutarch, the Greek biographer, he wrote these words, and with this, I make the bridge to our subject, embracing the cross. Plutarch wrote, all Greeks know what is right, but only the Spartans do it. That's a profound statement. There's much evidence, and we've covered it over the years, in the words of Jesus to define what a true disciple of Jesus is. When we use Jesus' words, his words, you must be born again, it seems to be more of a catchphrase than the words of Plutarch, where I could interpolate and say, all Christians know what is right, but it's the true follower of Christ that does what is right. I went through sermons with you. I wrote a whole doctoral dissertation on the doctrines we never hear, rarely hear, from the pulpit any longer. Holiness, the doctrine of hell, as well as the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of sanctification, and the prayer life, not a prayer time, and so on. And yet, we live in the times that Jesus spoke about, the apostles spoke about, and mimicked the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, when God kept telling these two prophets, there were others, of course, as well, that the prophets that were out there were false. They were teaching false doctrine. He says they speak out of their own heart. I did not send them. I did not tell them to go. They just went. We are living in that time right now. You know, even people who have nervous symptoms, anxiety, depression, or whatever, look for comfort. We all do. When really what they need and what you need and what I need is discipline. You see, the disciplined life is embracing the cross, embracing the crucified life. It's more than just singing about what Jesus did, and that is certainly the cornerstone or the keystone. But now, how is that applied to our life? To be a Christian, and we're going to see the words of Jesus, Jesus talked much about the personal crucifixion that any, every true believer in him would apply to their own life. And we'll see that in just a moment. Embrace the cross. It's the way of Christ. I say this again, as redundant as it may seem to you, but I say it for a purpose. For me, I have distanced myself from what is loosely called Christianity so that I can embrace Christ. I've been around this long enough to tell you, if someone with my many years of experience and many, many hours of study is confused by all the labels, and I am, if you were to ask me today, well, what is an evangelical and what is a fundamentalist and what is a free Baptist? You know, there's so many titles, there's thousands of them. And I cannot precisely say because it's defined by every local fellowship and by every denomination and it goes on and on and on. 
We find the same thing in Roman Catholicism. Pope says one thing, Cardinal says something else, Bishop says something else. And so we are a people of the book. We are people that go by this book. And we don't want that to be a pretense. Let me give you an example. I don't know what Sparta had in the way of identifying them when they either weren't in their city or they were on the battlefield. But I know that in Spec Ops, specifically Navy SEALs, they have a trident. And I'm assuming that some will actually have it tattooed on them. But they receive a trident after they go through their training. I'm wondering, though really I don't have to wonder, what it would be like if anyone shows up with a trident claiming to be a Navy SEAL when, after some questioning, they're found to not have done the training. You know that 10 men will join the Navy SEAL program and eight of them will walk away. Eight of them will ring the bell. Eight of them will quit. If you look at people's reasons or excuses, one will say, well, you know, I never really wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Uh-huh. That's not the truth. The truth is you signed up for something, you were told it was difficult, and when the difficulty came, you quit. You may remember I've told you stories about a couple of workouts that I did right up into my 60s. High-intensity training, very difficult, not easy. And some young people or somebody would get interested in it, and I would show it to them. I had two young men who vomited right in the gym. And I would always tell them, look, you don't have to do this, no, and they'd go a step further, and then it was quitting time. And one young guy said to me, I just don't think it works. I said, you just can't do the work. That's the truth. And I already told him, it's highly difficult. It's not easy. He's not saying this is easy. I never do that kind of thing. I told him this is very, very difficult to encourage them. Point is, there are contenders and there are pretenders. There are those who actually possess Christ or better, who are possessed by Christ. And those who lay claim to the promises that have no right to lay claim to them. The crucified life isn't just for the Apostle Paul or for mystics like St. John of the Cross and others. It's for all of us. And it's called discipline. In the fruit of the Spirit, it's called self-control. Last one mentioned, temperance. Embracing the crucified life is what it means to be a Christian. And so we look here at the words of the Apostle Paul. I, through the law, am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We know the life of the Apostle Paul was not an easy one. He was put to the test over and over and over and over and over again. And finally, like most of the apostles, he gave his life for the gospel. Let me go back to these spec ops people. You know, when you sign on for that, and I am sure that some young men sign on just a mental thing. It's a personal thing. They've got to overcome this, and they do. But let's back up and just talk about soldiers in general. There's only one purpose in the military. One. doesn't matter what your MOS is. There's only one purpose. Kill. That's it. That's all the military ever has or ever will stand for. Kill. That's the job of a soldier. Now, again, you may be a different place in the chain of what job you're supposed to do. Not everyone is in combat. But every soldier is designed by the nature of his calling or her calling to kill. That's it. So what is the nature of a Christian and why is there so much confusion? I'm not certain of all the reasons that there is such confusion, but I am certain of this. 
It's one thing to sing and talk about the cross when it applies only to Jesus, walk away and go do whatever you want, including breaking the laws of God. It's another thing when the spirit of God, like Nathan the prophet, comes to you and says, you are the man. You are the woman God is speaking to. Again, we're famous for always wishing someone was here to hear that message. And God is saying to you, well, they're not here, but you are. We have a way, it's like volleyball. God passes something to us and we're right over the net to somebody else. If you're truly living in the Lord, you know when the Lord's speaking to you. It's those that are not, for the moment I'll just simply call them pretenders, that always find somebody else this applies to. And that's not the way we live. Like the Spartans, we live the crucified life. It is not initially enjoyable, but it is necessary for the release of the Holy Spirit. I said to you just last week or the week before, we have to be truthful about the church in general. It's powerless. Now listen, I'm a musician. As you know, I play guitar, I play drums, I sing. It's relatively easy to amp people up. You're moved emotionally. And there's nothing wrong with that. God created music. Very powerful. But it has to translate into change in behavior, which is done by the grace of God and by the Spirit of God. And until we live the crucified life, there is no release of the Spirit of God in our life. You've heard the expression that you may be the only Bible somebody reads. Now we have to ask who will pay the price. Again, if you sign up for special forces, you are putting your life purposely on the line. I had this conversation with a man who was in special forces for many, many years. We got talking about those that are killed in an operation, most of which we don't hear about. He was registering an opinion about how the families are not compensated for and so on. And though I agree with that, I did ask him this question. I said, but didn't they sign up for that? It's just like the pastorate. My family didn't all say, let's go into ministry. God called me. If my wife was going to be faithful to her vows, then she's coming. And then we have children, and it's not an option for them. They go to church. Frankly, let me just say this too. There's a lot of expectations put on to the wife and to the children that don't belong there. It belongs on me. I'm the one that's called by God to be a pastor and to be a leader. But when I signed on, frankly, I didn't understand all of the dynamics of what this life would cost. But when you sign on for special forces or you sign on to be a soldier in general, again, you have to know it's possible that you're going to die. And in special forces, you have to know that it's very possible that not only will you die, and many do or some do, but that your family is going to be left without anything because they can't report this as a mission. And that has to be calculated. I'm not sure that it is, but I am sure of this. Every single person that names the name of Jesus Christ is called to the crucified life. We're not called to be superstars. This is some of the analogies from Sparta. I mean, they had their heroes, but every Spartan was a soldier. There wasn't any exceptions. There wasn't any Spartan that said, I don't want to go. I'm for peace. They all went. It is a misconception when we talk about the church to think there's any other church than the one named in this book, the church, the ecclesia, or ecclesia. You're called out of the world. Now the difficulty is to live a life that the Apostle Paul talked about and certainly lived, a crucified life. I am crucified with Christ. I live, but it's not me anymore. It's Christ living in me. And though you see me in the flesh, Christ is living through this flesh. And the sins and the deeds of the flesh are put away. Let's look at some of the commands of Christ concerning this subject. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
I am of the opinion that here in our modern world, we don't catch the impact this had upon the original hearers of the gospel. So let me paint a picture. Here in New York State, and it was practiced much more, we'll say 100 years ago, than it is today. We have the electric chair. So for a capital crime, people went to the electric chair, and they were executed. I think of the Lincoln conspirators, if you've ever seen pictures of them. After they were tried and found guilty, they were hung. And you can see pictures of them hanging from the gallows. Hanging was a regular part of a certain portion of our history, capital punishment. Now, imagine somebody who's new to this group over here, and we're talking about this young leader, 33 years old, that was sentenced to death in the electric chair. Immediately, we think of the worst type of criminal. And yet, the man standing in the pulpit is talking about this young rabbi that was executed by the Roman government, endorsed by the Jewish people, or if you want to flip it around, it doesn't matter, because everybody decided to kill him. But not just kill him, crucify him. And long before that happened, Jesus talked about this to the people that were following him. So let's interpose the word cross and put in electric chair. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and sit in the electric chair. But you know what? Even though we don't see it much at all any longer in so many, many states here, and especially in New York, already you get the picture. I mean, immediately you get the picture. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was certainly not orthodox in his theology, liberal in his theology, but he did stand up against the Nazi party. He was sent to labor camp, then concentration camp, or vice versa, and died there. He wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship. And so I would say about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who stood up against the Nazi party, though his theology was not orthodox in many, many respects, in applied theology, it certainly was. He talked about cheap grace and other things. But you see, when you come to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, it's hard to argue with the man because he was killed. You know, when it came time, and let's say, for example, when the Nazis said, listen, just renounce your affiliation, endorse us, and we'll let you go. Well, then his book wouldn't have had much impact. It would just be a book of theory that he himself did not live. And I tell you that that's what so many people who don't believe in Christ see in us. Just another religion. A theory that doesn't work because the people who profess it don't apply it. Well, maybe it's because so many Christians haven't heard it. And the plethora of preachers that we have today that talk about success and all these different things, you know, your best life now. And now what do we do? A fool could see things are getting worse and worse. I don't know what they do because I don't listen to them. I only know what this book says. And if we were to put in hanging or electric chair... We immediately get the picture that to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, means you die to yourself. It's metaphoric, obviously. And again, thankfully, I suppose, thankfully, the great majority of us, well into the 98, 99 percentile, are not going to die for our faith. But some do. But rather, like the Apostle Paul says in another place, he says, I die daily. I have often believed that it's easier to die for the Lord in a martyr situation once than to live a disciplined life every single day, always watching your thoughts, always watching your words, always watching what you put out for the whole world to see on social media. It's more difficult, I believe, to live every day and live a long life than to just be in a place for a few months or so, a few years, and then die once. But the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. This is the crucified life. This is the Christian life. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, even we can understand the implications of a Roman cross, much worse than the electric chair, much, much worse than hanging. 
Victims of the cross could hang on that cross for days, three, four, five, six, as much as nine days, bleeding, groaning, suffering, huge nails put through the radius and the ulna, severing the nerve, constant shooting pains going up the arms, the arms brought out of the sockets, you're sitting on a little post, you're stuck up in the groin, dying of dehydration and other things, and birds coming and starting to pick the dying flesh off your shoulders, your chest, your legs are lacerated from the beating and so on. And so to the disciples, they immediately had a picture, much as we would have with mention of the electric chair. So here's a preacher, and we're saying, let's sing it again. At the electric chair, at the electric chair where I first saw the light, at the gallows, at the gallows where I first saw the light. Now we get the idea of what Christianity actually is. We're talking about a Savior who died not because he was a criminal, but he died as one. He died under accusation, king of the Jews. Even Pilate didn't want to put him to death. The crowds were there, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus said, that's the reason I was born. I was born to die for you. And this will be all glory, right? The Bible is clear that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus died for your sins and everybody's happy. But I will register a complaint in the churches of America, at least, when does the preacher ever tell the people, now, you must die? Bonhoeffer was the one who said, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. Those of you who have heard me register again, my opinion on some of the techniques to get people in the building, whatever they do, well, I suppose that would be okay if at the end of it, the preacher says, now that you're here, I've got to tell you, you've got to live a disciplined life that glorifies God. You have to live a life that is so disciplined that it's like hanging on the cross. It's not hanging on the cross, and it's not being in an electric chair, but it's like it. You are dying to yourself. Do you realize that of every sin, that we read in the Bible, thou shalt not commit adultery, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Even God registers judgment on complaining. The most difficult thing to overcome for all of us is self. Now, we don't think in terms of putting bumper stickers on our car. It's all about me, but that's the innate nature of every human being. It's all about me. We choose even the church that we attend because I like that church. But what if it's the wrong doctrine? What if it's the wrong exhortation? Well, we have to choose Christ. Again, not Christianity. We have to choose Christ because Christianity is subject to who's defining it. So it may match the Bible and it may not. But Christ is Christ. And he said here, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, which is the same as saying, deny himself and die and follow me. Now, let's make no mistake about it. Living a disciplined life is not easy at first, but it gets easier. And here's the good news. The more you discipline yourself in this life of the cross and embracing the cross, the happier you become. How do I know that? Well, I know from personal experience, but I know because that's what the book says. And the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. I am concerned about our country. I am concerned about a lot of the things that I'm seeing and hearing and watching and so on and so forth. I'm concerned about it. But I understand as well that God is executing a plan worldwide, and that plan is going to stand. So once again, I said this last week, let me say it again. I can sing because I'm happy. Do I like everything? No. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, and I should be afraid. But we can sing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, if you watch my broadcast, my other broadcast, I was telling the people who do watch, when you personalize scripture verses, they really come alive. For God so loved the world, take the world out and put your name in. For God so loved Ray Barnett, 
that gave his only begotten son, that if Ray Barnett would believe on him, Ray Barnett would not perish, but have everlasting life. The scriptures come alive. When we look at the 23rd Psalm written by David, and we can say, the Lord is every bit my shepherd as much as he was David's. And that means every promise given to David, with few exceptions, is given to me. The Lord is my Jehovah Rapha. He's my healer. And we go from there. We go from there. The Lord is my shepherd. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I am of the opinion. I heard a friend of mine who, he has a broadcast, but he doesn't do it as a Christian broadcast. But he said just recently, at the beginning of this pandemic, he was saying that he didn't subscribe to things will not go back to normal. And he got angry at people that did. And now he says, we're not going back to normal. We can't go back. I don't mean just this one instance, because the plan of God is going forward. Let me speak about many shall leave the faith. This is probably premier message. Because as life is easy and the blessings are overflowing, yeah, it's great. And if the preacher is always telling people every week that they come, that they're going to have more rings and more diamonds and more luxuries, well, the people flock to it. The flesh loves those messages. But when the preacher says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. And people say, you know what? I had a few weeks, few months, few years of this. I'm going to find another church, which I've just told you. There is no such thing as another church. There's one church. It's the one mentioned in this book. That's it. So if you're going to make a lateral move, which is the only move you can make if you're truly in the church, oh, fine. Closer to your home. Fine. Save and get. That's fine. But most people don't do that. They find preachers that will let them go. They find preachers that will let them do whatever they want to do. And I will say this to you, and I believe this with all my heart. To hold people's feet to the fire takes a lot of patience and it takes a lot of guts. It's easier to let you do what you want rather than me call you aside and say, I'm going to talk to you for a second, please. Worse than that, it puts a lot of pressure on me because now I've got to live twice as fervently as I did before. But it's going to be done because that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would not, would you write this book the way it's written? I wouldn't write this book the way it's written. I'd write this book the way the preachers in America, some of them, write it. It's all smooth, baby. It's all cool. Everything goes your way. And when it's not, it's because you lack faith. I tell you, you know, all this stuff. But to be, I mean, a local pastor and to know the people that you pastor and to hold their feet to the fire takes a lot of guts. Am I talking about myself? I'm just telling you that this isn't easy. That's all I'm saying. It isn't easy. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't pray for you. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't say, write me if you have a prayer request. That's not an easy life to really love people, to really care for people. And it's part of the crucified life, because let's face it, as much as you think you're lovable, if you were to put that to a vote, that would be a very debatable point. We have, at the moment, a five-star rating as a church, because five people reviewed the ministry and gave us five stars. I'm certain if a thousand people review this, especially some who don't care for me at all, or the gospel, our ratings are going to drop. Well, the opinions of men or the opinion of God, we choose. Listen again to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10, a few chapters back. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Now, we all know that we're not worthy to begin with. But Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got to die to yourself. And if you don't, you're not worthy to follow me. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, when he had called the people unto him with his disciples. So now we have a bigger crowd. He said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, 
Take up his cross and follow me. Take up his electric chair, come and die and follow me. Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him as the rich young ruler and said unto him, one thing you lack. Imagine that. Imagine missing the kingdom of God by just one point. Because he said to Jesus, I'm not giving you all the verses, just the one. He said to Jesus, what do I lack for eternal life? He knew that he lacked something. Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he went through some of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And he says, I've done all these things. What do I lack? And that's when Jesus says this. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, one thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Take up the cross. And the rest of the verse talks about the fact that he went away greatly discouraged. It was the one thing, not that he couldn't do, it was the one thing he wouldn't do. Imagine that, one thing. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. And here's something interesting in Luke 9, 23. And let him take up his cross daily. Now listen, when you're crucified, that's just one day. And then however long hours or days it takes for you to die, that's it. But here Jesus emphasizes what the Apostle Paul says and what we need to hear. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me every day. And let me say this to you, and you should know this by experience. That's a grind. There are many, many days when you do not feel like acting Christ-like. There are many, many people you run into that you don't want to speak Christ-like to them or simply just be quiet or soften your tone or whatever. And this is the struggle. It's not living a great day once a week. It's living on the cross daily, every day. That's the difficulty. Luke 9, 24 for whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And then the 25th verse of Luke chapter 9. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? The reality of hell was spoken of quite frequently by Jesus. And as I've told you many times, two things. I know hell exists because Jesus said so. Amen. Secondly... That cross doesn't mean anything as far as Jesus' crucifixion if hell does not exist. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yet, within, I'm just confining myself to Christian teaching. Well, I mean Christianity, the one I told you I have rejected. Not in toto, just those that don't match the book. And so you did such and such and such as I say, this many prayers and this many prayers and this many prayers. Some of us grew up like that. And that was a type of atonement. You say so many prayers and all of this business and it's all forgotten. And God says, no, when sin is committed, the only way it can be paid for is death. So that's what you're reading when you read through the Old Testament. Yearly, monthly, daily, there's a blood sacrifice. An animal dies. Until finally, the ultimate sacrifice, the one God had in mind from the beginning comes, and that's Jesus Christ. And when he shed his blood, we are forgiven of our sins. Now, the thing that you need to know is that it doesn't stop there. I remember years ago, a woman who was a pastor in this area, very well-known, very godly woman, was our guest speaker. And she paid me a compliment, but it's not the compliment that I want to accent. It's the point that she made. She said, this pastor here will lead you miles beyond the cross. Because it just doesn't end with the sense of, yeah, did you fill out the card and the water baptism once and all of this. It's a daily life. 
Every single day we live the crucified life because that's what it means to be born again. Look at an infant. Now, in cute ways, in ways that we adore, they're selfish. But if you look carefully enough, you can see the seeds of rebellion in our human nature. It starts with the food. Well, there may be reasons that they reject food. It starts with the first word. One of the first words, no. It starts with the grousing that goes with taking a nap, time to go to bed, the discipline, it's bedtime. Then kids will either cry or argue or, you know, I've seen kids strike their parents. I've seen a young boy punching, now he's maybe 10 at the time, many years ago, in a parking lot, just wailing his mother with punches. Well, I can only say that in my era, that would not have happened, <laughs> ever. Not ever. I felt bad for the mom, I really did. This kid was out of control and she did not know what to do. My parents, my teachers at school, they knew what to do. They had a cure for most things, including ADD. Wow, I get it. <laughs> I say it was a better day. You knew where you stood. Now, what do we know? And see, in some ways, God is making it easier for us to believe the Word of God because there's nothing else that we can believe in. We can't find our footing on most subjects that we're dealing with today. But you can and should find your footing in the Word of God. In a sense, God is doing us a favor. He's saying, look to me, all the earth, and be saved be saved. Turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 6. Now the 6th and 8th chapter is verses that I'm going over with the younger people I have in my class on Wednesdays before I come here and teach you. And they memorize these chapters, Romans 6, Romans 8, every verse. They memorize the whole thing. Then they exegete the passages as they go along, looking up the Greek words, and then they write a commentary. And I read it every week, and we share what do you do with old clothes? Sometimes we have to go through our closets and there's just things we're not wearing, but they're still good. So you take them and you put it in the Goodwill box or you go to the Goodwill store because somebody else could actually use this. But all of us know whether it's our car or our shoes or our socks or our clothes, they wear down to a point where they are literally no good. We don't wash them anymore. We don't iron them anymore. We don't do anything to spruce them up. We throw it away. This flesh, though created by God for good, and I've studied anatomy and physiology, and I find it to be a fascinating subject, the human body. But for things spiritual, when Jesus said that God is to be worshipped in spirit, this flesh is worthless. For we are the circumcision that worship God in the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh. Have any of you tried to set out to say, I will live today, I will please God, and fail? Why did you fail? Because the confidence was here. You're the little train, I can do it, I can do it. That's okay when you're doing something with sports or something else, positive mental attitude, I'm all for it. But when it comes to this, there's only one way, life in the spirit. And the only way we can live life in the spirit is we have to recognize this is old and it is to be discarded concerning spiritual things. For spiritual things, it's worthless. Let's read it. Romans chapter 6, I want to read verses 1 through 4. Skip over 5, go to number 6, and then read verses 11 through 15. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The scriptures say that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Let's take out the word sin and just put it on the side. And let's use the word adultery. Let's use the word fornication. 
drug addiction, alcoholism, anger. You know, we all say it, right? Well, it's just my, and then you put in your ethnicity. If you listen to enough people, you realize that every ethnic group on the planet has a bad temper <laughs> or other things. Put in that sin that so easily besets you, and I can tell you where you start. Oh, yeah. The tongue. The Bible says that is the most difficult member to control. Start with your tongue and then work your way out. But throw in there, shall we continue in and then put in that one sin that besets you, or sins plural, so that God can keep giving us more grace? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now the question is proposed here, as the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Now we're back at the gospel. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow me. Now that's where we're at. This is the chapter you read for water baptism. That's what water baptism is. It's a grave. You've been baptized? You went into a grave. The old you, whatever it was about you, you were this and that, the other thing, and the gossip, whatever you were, is now dead. Every person that I've buried in my ministry no longer sins. They're dead. And this is what God is saying to you. When you're born again, you become dead to sin. Not dead dead to sinning. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Sixth verse. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. And what's the purpose of that? That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Interesting, when you do exegesis there of serve, it's the word kurias. And kurias is the Greek word for Lord. In this chapter, it'll go on to say, the Apostle Paul will go on to say, so sin will no longer be your Lord, because Christ is my Lord. And if Christ is truly your Lord, then you're living the crucified life. You're living a life of discipline, much like, but not completely like, the Spartans. To this day, thousands of years later, they're still admired for their discipline. Which, by the way, I want to just say something here. Most people who live a disciplined life, which is really a habitual life, they're habituated to various things, in the good sense of habituation, are admired. We may not be like them, but we wish we were. I read the story of a man who went up to a guy who was playing the organ, and he said, man, I wish I could play the organ. And the organist just turned around and said, no, you don't. He said, what do you mean? He said, because if you really wanted to play the organ, you'd be practicing and you'd be up here. Think about that. We want a magic wand to touch the brain, touch the hand, and we're just playing. What most human beings, the majority, don't want is those hours of practice and those hours of practice and the boredom that goes with truly becoming a master at something. Bruce Lee, the martial artist, he said, a master is just the average person with laser-like focus. I think it's true. Not everybody has the gift of music, or for that matter, has the gift of athleticism or other things, but you can become very proficient at anything if you cut out everything that's distracting you and focus on that one thing. And that one thing for us, we find in the 27th Psalm, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One thing. And that matches what we read in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 6, 33, seek ye First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
All these things shall be added unto you. But what I want to say to you is this, to encourage you. It is unfortunate for those who claim they're living a crucified life seem to be the most miserable people on the planet. Who would want to join that? I'm saying to you, the Bible is clear that those that live the disciplined or the crucified life, daily you become happier. Your spiritual eyesight gets more and more clear. You get to see what sin was actually doing to your brain, to your mind, to your loved ones. It's like going up a mountain. When you're down here, you can't see very much, but the more you go up that mountain, you get to see more and more and more and more and more. You come over here in certain parts on Market Street, and you see the valley and the beauty of it. But you can't see it when you're down in the valley. And when you live the crucified life, which is a disciplined life, which is a life of self-control, your spirit is lifted up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is you start to shine. I don't know that you sing. I don't know that you should. But I do know you'll be able to feel a buoyancy. You begin to sense an indomitable trait that means you cannot actually die. And why? Because you have the gift of eternal life. And it's more than just the words on the page, which are important enough. Now it's really inside you. So even when your Bible is closed, you sense that. You know that. And I'm saying this to you charitably. Not everybody who says they have it has it because they have not been to the cross. When they've been to the cross after, again, a few days, weeks, months, or even years, that's enough for me. And they deny the Lord. But they don't say it that way. We don't say it that way in America. We don't say, I'm turning away from Jesus. We simply say, I'm going someplace else. And ordinarily, not always, but ordinarily it's a place where the standards are much, much lower. They may not even be biblical at all. And so they can do whatever they want. And that's not where you want to be. I know that we're not the only church in town, and I know certainly I'm not the only preacher in America. I know that. But I can tell you in sincerity, it's getting more and more difficult to find men who will just stick with the text. You know, that's all I ever do. I do a lot of reading and a lot of studying, but I just let the text speak for itself. Because that's what preachers do, real preachers. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in a new life. Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon, the word reckon in Greek is an accounting term. My wife is the bookkeeper here at the church. Any bookkeeper is the same thing. Math is math. It is an exact science. It adds up or it doesn't add up. We're taught here to do the math in a manner of speaking, a way of illustration. Do the math of what the book says, not what you think and feel. What the book says, that you are crucified with him, that Jesus included you in him when he died, we died. When he was raised, here's baptism, when he was raised, we're raised. And now we're walking in a new life. The old man is crucified with him. Dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have kurias, lordship, over you. And here I want to finish with this. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. I have rarely heard a message, and I don't listen much to the radio because I'm not around it a lot. And only in books, most all of them are older books, the correlation between not being under the law and being given grace, and then this last two questions, what then, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? God forbid. 
Grace is not a static, but rather a dynamic quality. Look at, you go swimming in the ocean. The ocean has currents. Grace is somewhat similar to a current. Current of air, current of water, in the water. And that current starts to move you, you move. It's not a theory. You can look on the chart if you're down near the shore somewhere and talk about riptides and study riptides. And if you've ever been in a riptide and I got caught in one, you know right away, you're no longer in control. Well, at least partially. Then you take the steps swimming outside, even with the shore and all that, and you get around and come in. My point is this, when God gives grace, the breath of God, the way he created us in the beginning through Adam with the dust of the ground, when he breathed into man, and man became a living soul. Now Jesus comes, finally, and he says, you must be born again. And the spirit, he says, it blows where it wants. You don't know where it's coming from, don't know where it's going, but God breathes on you, it's called grace. And there's a change. Your mind changes. Then your speech changes. The way you view life, we looked at life this way. Now we're looking at it this way. We walked that way. Now we're walking this way. Those people who say, boy, that's strange. You see what happened to Ray Barnett? You hear what happened to Ray Barnett? And you're walking a whole dip because God is he's giving you grace. And you're being moved. And then when we try to sin, go back the other way, God grabs us and says, no, 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 no. This way. Gives you a little push, right? Shepherd's crook, shepherd's staff, and God is good. God is good. Let me give you a final exhortation. Don't go around saying you're living a holy life and look like you're constantly, constantly chewing on lemons. Because that's a lie, plain and simple. It's just a lie. That's pretense. When God has given you grace, it's a buoyancy, like a cork. You fall into the water and you pop back up again. And a wave comes and you pop back up again. The trials come. You come back up again. Like the Spartans, they said, what does you do? Hoo, hoo, hoo. We live on the cross. Doesn't matter what other people do in the city-state of other parts of Greece. Hoo, hoo, hoo. We live for Christ. Let others do what they're going to do. But they may show up one day and say, hey, you didn't have many people. One of us is equal to four of you. We're soldiers for Christ, right? Isn't that in the book? That's in the book. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Who was that written to? Christians, every Christian. Not just to me, not just to him, special people. It was written to every one of us. Endure hardness because it is difficult the way the cross is difficult at first. Then you start to yield the fruit of the Spirit and you say, God is good. God is good. And I'll say this, and when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, and it seems as though we're doing that right now, making a descent, we can still say, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Embrace the crucified life. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way that leads to the kingdom. Father, we bless you this morning. We give you the praise and we give you the glory and we give you the honor. Soli Deo Gloria. To you alone, God, be the glory, not to any man, not to me, not to their denominations. To you alone be the glory, God. To you alone. God, I pray. Your anointing would stay on your word throughout the days, weeks, months, and years to come, both here and those that are watching by way of the live stream and those that are listening on the radio. I ask you, God, to let your words just keep ringing like the long sustain of a good instrument. Help us, God, to remember and to embrace the crucified life. Help us, God, to become more and more comfortable being uncomfortable in a landscape that is habitually changing. As the goalposts are continually moved about by man, the field remains the same because it's ordained by you. 
and you are our rock, and you do not move. Therefore, we shall not be moved. Jesus is my Savior. I shall not be moved. In his loving favor, I shall not be moved. Father, I pray for all my friends that are here in the sanctuary, some that couldn't make it today, those that are watching again across the world, from all the countries that are tuning in, and also on the radio. Bless them, Lord, and give them strength in these dark days, because you said, I am the light of the world. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so, Lord, we end another, well, at least a service, and so much closer to your coming. You told us, if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And Lord, we're looking forward to that day. Cares all past. Home at last, ever to rejoice. So we give you the praise. Remind us this week to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength. Then to turn around and love one another, even as you have loved us. We do give you all of the praise. We do give you all of the glory. We do give you all of the honor today, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. And let everybody say today, Amen. Amen.